So in the Satipatthana discourse, the teaching offered by the Buddha about the ways of establishing mindfulness, the establishing of mindfulness within the body is clearly the very largest piece of this teaching. And there's many, many different ways of establishing mindfulness in the body, some of which we've already spoken about. Certainly it includes establishing mindfulness in the sense doors, in how we use our eyes, our ears. Really, as I spoke about last night, that capacity to see, to listen, to touch, to taste, without adding the extra narratives to it. We establish mindfulness in the body through actually creating and nurturing these anchors within the body breathing, within the body moving, within the body sensing, coming back again and again to being in this body. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, and and I will go into them, but Clearly, this is one of our primary disconnections in life, isn't it, between mind and body. The body is just moving through the world, doing its thing, and the mind is somewhere completely different, completely elsewhere. In fact, probably the times of really being established within the body in a single day for many are very, very brief. Mostly we're dealing with this basic disconnect, So a lot of the practice is about bringing this unification of body, mind, and present moment. And mindfulness within the body is always a present moment recollection. You know, we're not doing last year's toothache in the body right now. You know, we're not doing next year's migraine in the body right now. Every moment of being established within the body, we are established in a present moment recollection. So this is what we're learning to do. This is what we're developing. This is what we're cultivating, bringing about that unification of mind, body, present moment. Now, this is not an easy thing. And I think particularly for women to inhabit their bodies is not always an easy process. If you think about how many messages we receive from the world about the body, about appearance, about beauty, about acceptability, about what the right body actually looks like, about what is acceptable. And I think for, you know, sometimes I fear for younger women how even those messages become even more and more insistent and pressing and the very toxic effect it has for many women about how they relate to the body. We also receive messages from other sources, often quite contradictory messages about the body being somehow a kind of spiritual obstacle, you know, something to disdain, something to disconnect from, something to almost push away as being an an obstacle. 
so we're learning actually to establish a mindfulness in the body which is actually rooted in understanding the way things actually are. It's rooted in care, in compassion, in sensitivity, in understanding. The first teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta really addresses this. Because the, the instructions are to know the body as the body. That sounds simple, doesn't it? To know the body as the body. What the Buddha really is pointing towards here is to know the body as the body rather than knowing the body as myself. Hmm? All of the dukkha, or much of the dukkha, the the suffering, the struggle that we experience within the body, whether it's to do with appearance, whether it's to do with youth, aging, whether it's to do with illness, so much of the struggle that we experience within the body is because we don't always see the body as the body. We do indeed see the body as me, Hmm? my body. This is one of the primary dimensions of clinging that the Buddha speaks about that actually leads to so much struggle and torment. To know the body as the body. Always a present moment experience. Always changing. Never staying static. Something alive. Something ungraspable. Something that we're actually not really much in control of. A fluid process. In fact, the whole encouragement of the Buddhist teaching is to know the body as a process. Not as a thing, not as mine, not as belonging to me, not as describing who I am. So in the practice, again and again, you can understand we come back to the body, we come back to this place of non-identification to see things, to see the body as it actually is. And this is indeed a training for our life. Because we can actually so clearly see that this tendency to contract, this tendency to cling, this tendency to identify is surely not directed solely at the body. Isn't this one of the primary patterns that actually leads us into places of struggle and conflict and torment in almost every area of my life? So we come back to know the body as a body, to know the body sitting, to know the body breathing, to know the body listening, to know the body sensing. And somebody did write me a note with the question, is it important to sustain with one anchor? We've suggested three primary anchors, listening, breathing, and or the mindfulness of the whole body with all of its processes. So some of you may not ask, it's important to stay with one anchor, at least for one sitting. At least for one entire sitting. If you're kind of flitting around, you know, where's the right anchor? That's often, you know, is there a better anchor? You know, you, 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 your mind will become agitated. Your mind will become agitated and it won't allow that settling. It won't allow that calming. So staying with one anchor at least throughout one entire sitting or one entire walking. That would be my suggestion. 
But what are the lessons that we're really learning within the body? Because clearly, there's a it, as a ground of insight, mindfulness of the body is concerned with really some of these cognitive shifts that are made through understanding. So there's a lot of lessons that we are actually learning. Certainly, we're learning the lessons about sustaining intentionality. And that's what I mean when I'm staying with one anchor, about sustaining intentionality. We actually see how much of our life is governed by impulse, you know, governed by reactivity, just the movement towards, the movement away from, you know, pushing, pursuing, avoiding, how much of our life is governed by impulse. There was, there was a Western philosopher who said, you know, we, we go through life uh, dancing, on the end, dancing like puppets on the ends of our, the strings of our impulses. Hmm? And, you know, this is not a kind of judgmental statement, but, you know, an honest investigation about what moves us in the day, what moves us towards something, what moves us toward, away from something. How do we find ourselves standing entranced before the notice board that hasn't changed? Um, you know, how do we find ourselves suddenly arriving in our room not quite knowing how we got there? You know, how do we find ourselves suddenly scratching our head, you know, and it wasn't even itching, but, you know, we're doing it anyway. You know, just just to know how much those impulses are actually, and, and thought, how much of our thinking is actually intentional, and how much of our thinking is actually quite compulsive or habitual. So we're learning to sustain intentionality. This movement from impulse to intentionality is a powerful piece of our life. Hmm? To live an intentional life. To inhabit the moment in an intentional way. Rather than being governed by impulse. This is one of the primary lessons we learn within sustaining Attention within the body is sustaining intention rather than intention being repeatedly hijacked by impulse. And it's good to think of the implications of that in our life, you know. Most of us don't get up in the morning thinking, you know, I'm going to go out in the world and just be as grumpy as possible. You know, or I'm going to go out into my day and just speak as harshly as I possibly can to every person I meet. Most of us don't have that intention, do we? But we go out even with the intention for as much kindness, as much mindfulness as possible until we get those triggers. And then we see the impulses arrive that sabotage intention. So learning to sustain intention in the practice. We're learning a lot about equanimity within the body, about a non-preferential attention. You know, you, you, you're, I'm pretty sure everybody's experience of the body in this room is it's not all a cakewalk, is it? You know, there is places of discomfort. You know, there are places of pain. There are people here, you know, with ongoing illnesses, you know, that they've had to get up and meet every morning of their life. You know, but we're learning to develop a non-preferential attention. How to be that with that parts of the body that are quite well, easeful, with mindfulness, with care, with kindness. How to be with the difficult in exactly the same way. 
with mindfulness, with care, with curiosity. We learn equanimity is also a practice. Mm-hmm. Not be pushing away, not going towards, ah, this too. I can investigate the discomfort. I can be curious about the discomfort. I can form a dialogue with the discomfort rather than moving so quickly into that identified process of my pain, my knee, you know, my shoulder. Ah, sensation is happening and I can bring to it that completely different relationship which changes the shape of the mind and, of course, does also in that, to some extent, change the shape of our experience. It's not as if mindfulness makes discomfort go away, but aversion and fear of discomfort will surely make it stay and intensify and magnify. We're learning a lot about impermanence within the body, Seeing the body as process, constantly changing. You cannot make a single sensation stay exactly the same. There is movement, there is process. But what we are often really primarily learning to do within the body is to cut and sever the link between the present moment experience, whether it's uncomfortable or comfortable, whether it's painful or easeful, to cut the link between the present moment experience and those habitual underlying tendencies that surround it. So the unpleasant does not need to be met with aversion and fear. The pleasant does not need to be met with clinging and grasping and I want more. We learned a lot, you know, some of, of course, some of the very predominant mind states, and we mentioned this yesterday, really also have this very physical impact and this, this, this feedback loop between mind and body. And we do begin to be able to explore the body of mind states, the body of emotions, the body of sadness, the body of anxiety, the body of contractedness. We can feel that happening in the mind and the heart, and we come to the body, ah, how is this being experienced? How is this being felt? How is this changing? Stepping out of the narrative, which is often the way that we, the way we use to try and understand what is going on, is to bring in more narrative, more, looking for more solutions, more stories. We come to that core experience of the body of mind states, the body of emotions. We're learning actually to align ourselves with what is actually taking place. Whenever we come back to the body, of course, we're always coming back from somewhere, aren't we? Hmm? Whenever, you know, you can be lost in some fantasy, you know, some rehearsal, some plan, and then you get that little moment, and these moments become bigger moments, by the way, that little moment of mindfulness that suddenly recognizes, you know, I am gone, you know. And so we come back to the body, we come back to the body. In this sense, it's really a training in letting go. It's really a training in relinquishing that tendency to be lost. So every time we do that with some willingness and some, some kindness and often, I think, some determination, 
every time we come back to the body. It really is that training again in re-establishing that present moment recollection. Not lost in thoughts of the future, not lost in thoughts of the past, not lost in the constructions of the moment, but here in this body. So as we go on through the retreat, mindfulness of, establishing mindfulness within the body is going to continue to be our primary practice. It will, you know, we're not going to move on to more exotic and, and you know, really esoteric and mystical practices. You know, we're going to stay here. We're going to stay here in the body. Because every time we inhabit the body, we are inhabiting our life. And we're inhabiting this moment. Only as the retreat goes on, we will start to inform that practice in slightly different ways through the other ways of establishing mindfulness. But this is the home base. This is our core ground. This is where we learn to develop that kind of simplicity and present moment recollection. Okay, so taking some moments really just to check in with your posture. What does it feel like to be upright, alert? What does it feel like to allow the body to come to a place of quietude? of calmness within the posture. And establishing mindfulness within the body of this moment. Sensitive, inner listening, balanced, What is the life of the body just now? Letting your back and your neck be upright. Feeling that sense of wakefulness within the body. Sensing the places where your body touches the mat or the cushion or the chair as places of contact. What are the sensations present there? Pressure or warmth? Feeling your hands touching one another or touching your legs. Sensing the sensations present in that place of contact.
Feeling the touch of the air on your clothing, on your skin. The body listening, the sounds, the quietude. Feeling the spectrum of sensations happening throughout your body. Process, changing, moving, arising, passing. Sensing your body breathing, the coolness of the in-breath entering your body. The way that your body expands with that in-breath. Relaxes with the out-breath. And the warmth of that outgoing breath as it leaves your body. Cultivating a present moment, recollection, established within the body. 
in the moments when your attention departs, bringing that same simple mindfulness to know just where you are, in a thought, in an image, in a sound, simple knowing and a returning to the body.
So one of the best ways to understand the difference between intentionality and impulsivity is in the practice of walking. It's so easy to begin walking with the best of intentions and walk for a few minutes or a little while. And then all of a sudden, you know, the impulse, I've got to get a cup of tea right now. I've got to. I will not survive if I don't get a cup of tea. I have to do this. I have to do that. And to be aware of that original intention guiding you. It is a really interesting way to work with the walking, to um, see the walking in the same way as you see the sitting, where you don't just get up and run out of the hall. Peer pressure helps quite a bit in that dynamic. But in the walking, it's much more porous. And you can just go here and there, and there's always good reason for that. So quite a wonderful discipline to begin the walking and to sustain the walking in the same way as you would sustain the sitting. In other words, unless there's a really good reason to leave the context of the walking, to continue with the walking throughout the whole session, just as you would in the sitting. In this way, seeing the difference between intention and reaction and impulses, it becomes very, very clear. And then, is there the willingness to be aware of the discomfort of not following impulse? Because it's not fun. You know, that moment can become fun. But in that moment of restraint, one has to be able to Um, be compassionate with that restraint, open to that restraint, Um, be generous with that moment there, seeing if it's possible to recognize it as wisdom and not as repression. Because again, it's following one's original intention. And I would say that it's one of the treasures of walking meditation. You know, there's all these treasures in the practice that we stumble upon or discover at some point or another. And that's kind of the point of doing the walking practice and not um, not doing it, because you won't ever discover the treasures in these things unless you're around for them and actually do them. So one of the treasures in walking meditation practice is being able to visibly see what your mind is doing. You know, to visibly see what is going on within you, which sometimes you can see in the sitting and sometimes you can't. It's just um, a bit of a different form. Using these different forms um, kind of illuminate different arenas within. And so encouraging you to discover this treasure within the walking practice by sustaining the attention Being recently in Burma and um, uh, going to a number of um, meditation centers and uh, not the ones that are encouraging the sectarianism there, but the ones that are really, really quite steadfast in in practice and good-heartedness. And every place that I went, somebody was practicing walking meditation. Oftentimes, many, many people, you'd go into a center and you know, kind of just walk around. And um, so many uh, nuns, monks, uh, yoginis, yogis um, out there 
visibly expressing their practice, practicing walking meditation. And it's so beautiful when you come into that. You know, everyone kind of holding, holding their ground and um, expressing their practice through the walking. Some years ago, one of my sisters came to visit and when I was teaching and um, practiced a little bit for a couple of days. And so she went off to do the walking and she started to do it. And then she noticed that all of a sudden she was alone, you know, and she thought, where is everybody? Yeah. And it was that kind of thing of beginning and then not sustaining it. So just that encouragement. I mean, she was only here for a very short amount of time, so not a whole lot of discipline behind what she was trying to do. It's different to be here for the whole week. But just that sustaining of attentiveness and expression of the practice is so beautiful and such an offering to yourself and to others as well. One of the other treasures that one discovers in the walking is that it balances the energies quite naturally. You know, so if you're restless, it tends to calm things down. It tends to bring about a greater degree of peacefulness, of calmness, of steadiness. If you find yourself really sleepy, it wakes you up. Yeah? It tends to awaken one, bring about a little bit more energy. Sometimes the pace can help, but sometimes it doesn't have to do with the pace. It just has to do with sustaining the attentiveness, inhabiting the body, being within the body while walking. So um, today might seem a little bit slightly more eventful than yesterday, but it's not. (laughs) Nothing much is happening, and as much as we're able to attain that, nothing is going to be happening. But it might seem a tiny bit more eventful if you look at the schedule because um, there's a guided meditation. There's metta at the 2.15 sitting, which there will be every day for the rest of the retreat. And um, there is also mindful movement yoga with Eowyn. I'll introduce her later this afternoon. But non-eventful, just another way of practicing another form. And then the interviews today, um, which can feel like um, like an event, but actually are not. <laughs> it depends on your perspective. So I would encourage with the um, with the interview groups. One thing before I forget to say this is that. Um, if those of you who don't have a group could just kind of hang back and let those of you who do have a group right now or at the next after the next sitting as well leave first so that you can get to the groups in a timely way, that would be great. Um, don't pause for tea. Um, of course, bathroom, of course, but, um, but not tea. And, um, and to come to the groups on time to make sure that you do find your name. You'll be in a group either today or tomorrow. One of the two days, we'll see everybody throughout the next couple of days. And um, they aren't, aren't optional. We do need to check in with each one of you. So make sure that you find your name and, um, and come. And then, no need to make it event, an event because no need to rehearse No need to think about what you're going to say before you get there. No need to all of a sudden become a somebody. Some wonderful thing being on retreat is that you don't need to be anybody. And there's quite a lot of spaciousness and relaxation in that. 
And then sometimes when you're in a group, oh, all of a sudden, I've got to um, to be a somebody, or I've got to kind of justify my existence, or, you know, there is this odd word, interview. We are not interviewing you. We are really happy all of you are here. And, um, <laughs> it's all going to go really well. <laughs> I can just tell you that. So come as you are. Come in a relaxed way. Um, be present moment attentiveness, you know. In other words, make it into practice itself to be in the group and not other than. And, um, you know, see if you can stay quite present with your experiences as in uh, maybe just, you know, the hour or two before or maybe the day before, that kind of thing. But um, to stay as present as you can in how you're relating. Okay, I think I... Anything else? Yeah? Okay. All right. So, um, have a um, have a very present day today. That will be a beautiful day if you have a present day. <laughs>